I'm Kate. I'm Callie. We're two friends who met in an early modern history MA. Welcome to the Six Queens podcast, where queenship reigns supreme. Anyway, we thought we would drop a quick surprise episode uh, just to say hi, and we are recording our series three, but we thought that it was only after that we take a quick break from it to pay tribute to uh, Dame Hilary Mantel, who passed last week, and we were both kind of sad about it, so wanted to do something to, to mark her passing. Really sad? Like, in a way, I didn't expect to be sad, especially yeah. for someone that we've never met. And it's been a weird time for you all, too, like with so many like big deaths. So it's, you know, this one is just, it just hit differently. Yeah, it's it's been a bit weird, I think, because I think, like you said, like the specific, like there was a, I don't know if anybody else has been watching the news or exposed to the internet, quite a high profile um, passing in the UK. And then really? I think hers is just, yeah, but, just kind of, but then I feel like Hilary Mantel's death has kind of gone unnoticed and kind of slipped by quite quietly, which... You know, in terms of if you ask 100 people on the street or even five people on the street, you know, Queen of England, Hilary Mantel, I think more people are going to know who the Queen of England is. So it kind of makes sense in that respect. But I think, you know, within our the circles that we run in, you know, I think it, it's um, it's been quite sad. Yeah. So for anyone who is um, under a rock, Hilary Mantel was the author of the uh, Thomas Cromwell trilogy. So Wolf Hall, Bring Up the Bodies and The Mirror in the Light. And they focus on the life and the career of Thomas Cromwell in the court of Henry VIII. So for those of you who listen for women's history, uh, Thomas Cromwell meets the first four of our queens who feature in the novels. So it's an interesting look at them, but it's also just an interesting look at the Tudor court. I remember when it first came out and I thought, I've never read a novel about the Tudors quite like this, like quite this good. Yeah, and I think it's interesting that it is coming from Cromwell's perspective, really, more than all that we're following Cromwell and seeing the world through his eyes. Um, you don't really get that all too often. We get um, a lot, a lot of historical fiction, and let's be what we are talking about here with Wolf Hall, bring up the bodies of mirror and the light. It is all historical fiction. Yeah, quite possibly, I'd, I'd go as far as to say the best historical fiction I've ever read and oh, yeah. interacted with. Um, but it is fiction. But what I think she does so brilliantly, because let's be honest, these books aren't small. Like the three of them are quite chunky, even in the paperback <laughs> version. <laughs> but what I think she does so brilliantly is she understands Thomas Cromwell in a way that I don't think many other people do, historian or otherwise. You know, the way she writes him and using the basis of history as, you know, a foundation for the book. And really beautifully like papering over the cracks that and, and the conversations that we don't have any records for but does it so seamlessly and so effortlessly that you think actually I think he would think like this and mm-hmm. I think he would interact with maybe Amber in this way or Catherine of Aragon this way mm-hmm. to the point that when you finish even you know the first couple of chapters you start to feel like you know him and you start to feel like you understand Tudor England in a way that you never really would what she did and how she wrote it. Yeah, I keep thinking about how lucky we were to have her take an interest in the 16th century because 
like you were saying, this is probably certainly the best historical fiction of any period, but usually with the 16th century and then especially where it concerns the Tudors, I feel like we can only get like Philip of Gregory bodice rippers on one hand, or we get like Henry VIII gnawing on turkey legs on the other hand. We don't get anything <laughs> that's actually like that takes itself seriously that's really immersive and it's just well written so i think yeah not only is she a brilliant author and would do justice to anything she touched but like we she, we were lucky that she took an interest in our period so of course she did it justice and like you were saying it's so impeccably researched that in some cases when i'm reading the books i know exactly what sources she used you know like if she's referencing um like a letter that, um, you know, Eustace Shefty wrote to Emperor Charles. And it's, um, he's saying, oh, and then I talked to Cromwell about this and X, Y, and Z. And he said X, Y, and Z. She turned that into prose. So you're like, oh, wow, I know exactly what she was reading. I know exactly where this comes from. Like you say, with especially historical fiction or fiction around the 16th century, is that the, the people that you're dealing with tend to become caricatures of themselves especially someone like larger than life than Henry. Like it's so easy to make him into a character. Yeah. It's a really weird thing because I think what she does really brilliantly is she listens to what the sources are telling her and allows them to come off the page that way. Does that make sense? Oh no, it does. You, like you said, you get the idea that if anyone was going to kind of fill in the cracks, it should be her because she understands the people and their motivations so well. I mean, obviously it is fictionalized because we can't know for sure, but for a lot of the characters, if I had to bet like what their personalities were and what their motivations were and their characteristics, I would a hundred percent go down the same route as she did with some of them. It's just impeccable. She writes them so beautifully simply. And I know there's a lot of debate, especially around people like uh, Thomas Cromwell and Anne Boleyn about their characters and about what sort of people they are. And I really don't think that she plays into that debate. She kind of sets herself apart. Like you said, they're not 2D figures. They're, they're here fleshed out and here's what they would have done. It's just, ugh, we're gushing. <laughs> I know. And I could do it for hours. And it's so rare for historical fiction to bridge that gap between being something accessible that even if you don't know anything about the period, you can just read and appreciate on its own. Yeah. And the historians love it. We're, again, we're not saying that she stuck to the fact 100% of the time, but she approached the source material in a way that made it believable for us. So we weren't sitting there nitpicking her constantly, even yes. if... <laughs> Even with changes, we would be like, yeah, that makes sense that that would be like that or that you would move that around or whatever. It's not the kind of, you know, change that rips you out of the period. If anything, it immerses you in the period because she did her research so well that even yeah. if Cromwell is doing something that is completely made up, at least he is in a world that she researched so impeccably that we recognize it. So we thought that we would do a special edition episode of Sex Queens on screen and focus on the 
miniseries adaptation of the first two Wolf Hall novels, Wolf Hall and Bring Up the Bodies. So we're not going to cover the stage adaptation, although that does too exist. We're going to focus on the miniseries version um, that was done by the BBC. It's fair to say that, you know, just as a starting point, you when you have a book or a film or a series that you love a lot and is adapted to the TV or film or whatever, there's always a bit of hesitation and fear of what people are going to do with it. I think in this particular instance, it was like they lifted what she created off the page and smacked it on the screen. As adaptations go, it's pretty near perfect. Pretty spot on. And to be fair, hats off to the cast that they assembled for it as well. So oh, yeah. Claire Foy as Anne Boleyn and Mark Rylands as Cromwell. I, mm-hmm. I struggle to see anybody else now that, you know, yeah. isn't... I know. The acting is just so good. Um, the attention to period detail, like they filmed in houses from the period, you know, like National Trust properties from the period. One thing that I always loved was uh, in the early scenes of Cromwell's early career when he's um, working for Cardinal Wolsey, they shoot, I guess, I can't remember what the house is now. Is it Penshurst? Um Yes. Yeah, uh, it stands in for what will become uh, Whitehall Palace, York Place. But then when Anne Boleyn takes it over some years later, they actually keep filming in the same location. So you can tell, like, oh, this is the palace that she took over. It's just little things like that that they didn't have to do, but they did, that I appreciate. And um, the fact that, too, like, there was all natural lighting. So, like, in some of the nighttime scenes, you really can't see a thing because it's just candlelit. It's just so good. They didn't have to, but they did. But it just adds such a, a little detail yeah, that is really appreciated. And also, Game of Thrones creators, if you are listening, you could have learned a thing or two um, from the last <laughs> series. The only kind of complaint that I have in terms of the production is that I do think some of the costumes are, like, not spectacular like it you can tell that they spend a lot of money on certain costumes so then by contrast other costumes just don't stand out like in particular the women's costumes and oh my god i like i'm a stickler for all the headwear like all the hoods and everything (laughs) and those french hoods are abominable i hate them and i just like the one where uh, that mary boleyn's wearing where like all her hair's coming out of it i'm just like honey rip that thing off your head it's just not doing anything No, I don't like it. I don't like it. But to be fair, I think, again, in the grand scheme of things, if, you know, we're kind of walking away and saying, like, this is our least favorite thing about this, you know. Yeah. Compared to some of the other things we have tolerated, and I use tolerated, bold and underlined, you know, like, we've we've suffered our way through some stuff. Right. If Um, the only thing I can nitpick is the the headbands that you're using in lieu of French words, then you're doing really well. And it's just yeah. so easy to watch as well. Oh yeah. Um. But so, I think like we we again like have that privilege and that kind of, and we've seen it enough times to be like, oh no, I I really don't like this part, or this part is absolutely my favorite. Yeah. I mean, even coming into this, I was thinking, well, you know, we have to, we do have to be fair and we have to be critical. And I was thinking as I was in the shower today of what can I say about it? That's critical. And that's what I came up with is you know, Mary Boleyn's um, French hood in quotation marks. We're, we're not doing too badly here. Yeah. So adaptation wise, in terms of 
adapting the source material, it's, it's good. It's so good. But because this is Six Queens, I think worth talking about the legacy that not only this adaptation, but also the books it's based on have had on Anne Boleyn. Like I said, the other, the first four of our queens feature in the novels and, and the adaptation, but Anne Boleyn is really the sort of chief of them. She's one of the main characters for sure of the first two books. I mean, the whole second book is about her downfall, orchestrating her downfall. And I think it's so well written and it's become such a cultural icon that it's caused us all to kind of reassess Anne. Um, I mean, she had been portrayed in the Tudors, obviously, as a really like capable, savvy woman. But I think even further with Wolf Hall, the novels and the adaptation, we see her now more as a politician. And I think what Hilary Mantel does really well is shows her not making mistakes and not always being perfectly on top of it. She has moments where she is quite paranoid about misstepping and you see just how much more dangerous it was for her to be in this world, which I know a lot of people didn't respond to. They think it's too severe uh, a characterization of Anne, but I loved from the moment I read the book. Do you know what? I think she does a really good job of showing, like we were saying earlier, the complexities of human nature, you know, Anne was very clever, you know, she she was very able and capable, but at the end of the day, she is a person who, yeah. you know, she even has her saying it in the book, you know, Hen Henry made a new church, he made a new England for me, England doesn't exist without me. And while you can kind of see that as her telling people around her, like, I'm not going anywhere, there's also an element of her reassuring herself. And again, I think that's what Claire Foy, you know, brings to life so wonderfully about Anne is that she gives her that physical presence in a room of saying, I'm not going anywhere, but her face does something else completely. Hilary Mantel writes it so wonderfully and so simply that it's brought to life so well by those actors. Mm -hmm. I think one thing that we have to remember about the novels and then sort of sort of in the same vein, the adaptation, but maybe not as much as the novels, is that the novels are written from the point of view of like Cromwell's mind, like you, you are literally like inside his head and you're seeing the world yeah. through his eyes. And so of course the Anne Boleyn that Cromwell sees isn't necessarily the softer side of her. He's not being seduced by her. He's not seeing any of that. He is seeing her as either a political ally or a political rival. And that is definitely a side of Anne that existed. So of course that's going to be kind of the one that's prevalent in, in the novels. I never really minded it because I thought that so, so often we get that version of Anne. That's sort of the seductive, but you know, then quiet victim later. This Anne is a whole politician. I think as well, where this, this all came about as a, but like th three books, but you know, if we're talking specifically about Wolf Hall, what she doesn't do is she doesn't rush the crescendo to that Anne Boleyn and Cromwell relationship. She mm -hmm. lets it build and build, and it's not always at the front of the page either. It's also it can be you know in the background, just simmering away. 
the more you go back and reread it, you're like, oh, that's there. Oh, that's clever. I never noticed that before. Or like, you know, it's just mm-hmm. in a look that someone gave somebody else, but in a very, very clever way. So then when it reaches that point where Cromwell and Henry, have deci- well, Henry's decided actually she needs to go, we're done. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and you see Cromwell convince himself that actually, no, I do need to get rid of her. You see that kind of him being torn and then actually coming around to Henry's way of thinking. It's not just a, a switch that so yeah. often it is. Right. He's a human being who had to think about it first. And then even when he's sort of constructing this narrative of, oh, she committed adultery and the king wasn't necessarily cuckolded as much as he was the victim of this, like, you know, sex addict, basically. He, you, you can see him really having to think about it. I, I, he feels conflicted, but not enough. That was a really good compromise of her because one of the big historical questions sort of regarding the downfall of Anne Boleyn is how much agency Cromwell had over the situation. Like, was he doing it himself or was Henry telling him what to do? Or was Henry saying, do it somehow? And Cromwell said, okay, and then went crazy. Um, we don't, we don't know. So I think her kind of riding that middle line of, Henry told me to do it, so I need to figure out a, the best way to do it. And I don't really like it, but I'm going to do it anyway. That sort of gray area is just, it's so good. And then added on to the fact that you've seen his relationship with Anne Boleyn go up and down, where they're friends and they're allies, but then they disagree on something and they fall out. But then they're useful to each other again, but then they fall out. And then it just, it's so human that it, it makes complete sense that this is how it happened. It's, it's brilliant again with with this book because it's uh, historical fiction it intertwines their fates almost to you know it's, it's almost Romeo and Juliet like you know they were kind of almost star not star crossed lovers but like kind of kindred spirits they, they were kind of in, thank you that is what I was trying to say kind of entwined in each other's destiny I mean the best line one of the best lines in um the books and then carried over to the adaptation is when Anne is threatening Cromwell she knows that he's kind of starting to move against her and she says reminds him that those who are made can be unmade and he says yeah I agree because they're in the exact same position of there are two people who shouldn't be here who played on each other to get here and now it's crumbling and only one of them can survive what Hilary Mantel did was she figured out the human drama in all of this, and she didn't have to necessarily change anything like so many people who are adapting history do. She saw the human drama that was already there and just said, how can I make it bigger? How can I exacerbate it to the point that you're just like, oh my God, this happened. Give me more. <laughs> <laughs> because it is so poetic. Angeline's downfall is one of those yeah. chapters of history that you sit back and you're like, that happened that is ridiculous so so good i mean the um the wolf hall books adaptation adaptation and then claire foy's um portrayal of Anne Boleyn. they're not universally beloved i know a lot of people who um you know really identify with or love or whatever Anne Boleyn, who really don't like this portrayal of her and kind of really don't like hillary mantel for almost um pardoning cromwell over what he did to Anne Boleyn, uh, because they, I mean, they see it as a crime if he, he basically murdered her, which to our modern sensibilities is not untrue, but like Cromwell probably wasn't a black and white evil villain. Like he's so often been portrayed. You have to find that 
that gray area, just as you have to find the gray area in Anne Boleyn. This idea that she did do bad things and she did scheme to the point where she schemed herself into a corner and couldn't get out. So I think what Hillary does is she definitely picks up on that. And because it's from the political point of view, the political side of things, I just think that is a lot harsher than a lot of other historical dramas have it. So maybe it was just like more shocking to people. I don't know. Because she does the same. I find this account a lot more believable though, both of them. Yeah. Yeah. She does the same thing a bit with um, other people in the story, like Thomas More. Um, like you really can tell that she was irritated by the sort of saintly portrayal of Thomas More and wanted to blow up the record <laughs> a little bit. So I think maybe in the same vein, she was kind of tired of this like very plush depiction of Anne Boleyn. I've, I read this whole article a few years ago about how it's not even a feminist portrayal of Anne Boleyn, because obviously like what the media labels as feminist portrayals tend to be like very girl boss, no nonsense, can do no wrong portrayals of women. But this Anne is extremely flawed and yet you still feel a connection to her and feel sorry for her. So I like that rounder version of her. It's messy and people are messy. Yeah, because whether the version you were of Anne that you were thinking before was like evil, seductress, villain, irritating shrew, or it was like super martyr. Obviously the truth is somewhere in the middle. And I feel like since Wolf Hall, all of the adaptations have been following more along those lines. You see Anne as the politician, you see her as a mother, you see her as somebody who knows the game, but makes mistakes, who's very ambitious. Yeah. Uh, but I mean, let's talk about some of the other women, too, because Hilary Mantel also touches Catherine of Aragon. Um, there's a, a bit of Catherine yes. of Aragon in Wolf Hall, where Cromwell is sort of interceding with her on Henry's behalf. Uh, Jane Seymour features very heavily in Bring Up the Bodies, obviously, because she's kind of angling herself to be queen. And then The Mirror and the Light is all about the fallout of Cromwell's arranged marriage of uh, Anne of Cleves to Henry. I feel like she kind of had the Herculean task of making these women all recognizable in the way that we've come to think of them in fiction, but fitting them very organically into her story. Catherine is this just like very quiet, formidable person who sometimes comes into the story and you're like, even reading it, the book, you're like, oh man, we don't mess with her. But then Jane too, was she very naturally a quiet demure woman or was she just playing that role to get henry was she interested in being queen or was she just kind of there and again i think that's picked up quite well in the wolf hall series because we see jane start to appear in that you know there's scenes with just quiet little glances across court between yeah. jane and henry but it's just for a few seconds but it's, and again but I it's enough it's, yeah it's the way she slowly builds everything in mm -hmm. and nothing's rushed. And then just be like, Catherine, Anne, Jane. Yep. One thing I did like that they did in the book that was a little different was they showed Cromwell very early on knowing that something was there in Jane. Like he noticed her very early on. The way that it's portrayed in the show by, by Mark Rylance is that the attraction to kind of the innocence of Jane, like she's in this court where everyone's at each other's throats constantly, but she's like, oh, if, 
I, I'm trying to spy, so please don't speak in French because I can't speak French. You know, she's just so like, <laughs> she's just so doofy about some stuff that I think he finds it refreshing. But then the longer yeah. he knows her, the more he sees in her of like, oh, she's actually really smart and really capable. And I really like that perception of Jane is that she knows when to play her cards because she's been quietly watching everything her whole life. It just makes yeah. so much sense. What is it Anne calls her? It's a, oh, the, the mousy, the mousy one that always cries. Yeah, the milk face. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I just never know. I feel like there's always such a question mark over Jane. And again, I think it, it speaks to the gaps that we have about these people. Yeah. There's a lot of guessing, but it's, it's intelligent guessing about what she would have been like and, you know, bringing her to life, but not in a way that you're just like, Christ, <laughs> like somebody's missed the mark again. Where she takes it is just... You can still, especially with the women, you can still recognize them as people. They're not the romanticized figures that we've so often come to know. It's decidedly unsexy, but in the best way possible. It's, yeah, it's gritty and it's immersive, but it's not sexy and that's fine. It doesn't need to be. It has so much else going for it. The fact that we got such a nuanced portrayal of this so often told story. Wow, how lucky are we? <laughs> Very. And I think in a weird way, what Hilary Mantel does with her books, you know, it brings historical figures to life, especially uh, the four queens that are featured in it. It's weirdly kind of what we try and do. Yeah. She, she tells a story that we, we think we know and she doesn't do it in the normal way. She does it through a different lens, through Cromwell, and she does it through letting them speak for themselves. Just letting them be people and trying to work with what we've been given and what we know about them. Uh, not necessarily trying to change them in any way or make them into what we want them to be, but just looking at them as we think that they were. I think the reason Hilary Mantel was so successful in writing her books is she did have that historian spirit of like wanting to just know all of this stuff about them. And I mean, even when you read the books, the reason they're so long is probably because she kept finding all this cool stuff that she wanted to put in the books um, because she was a nerd like us. Not mad about it. No, Again, not no mad. give me I all of it. Henceforth, anyone that invokes the spirit of this and just wants to let that inner nerd mm -hmm be free and manifest itself into something brilliant shall be called the mantel method the mantel method yeah so yeah we just wanted to kind of have this moment to get our thoughts out and i think really kind of just process the loss of her i mean obviously we didn't know her personally it's not our personal loss that we're trying to process but just her impact on the tudor community and the historic community and the historic fiction community is just so unparalleled especially in the in the 21st century the fact to think that there's stories that she probably still had in her that we're, you know, we're never going to get to to read or see or experience is, is really quite sad because, you know, I think for someone who had such a gift for writing about the 16th century or just history as a whole is something we're not going to get for a very long time. No. And you know how much of an impact she had to by seeing all of the tributes from historians floating around um, social media. Like Lucy Worsley wrote this really lovely account of like the first time they saw her she was 
attending a lecture um, and like furiously like writing down notes because she was just so invested in this time period that I, I don't know. I just feel like as historians, we're so used to being told that like we need to kind of chill out and just, you know, accept that this is a drama and, you know, you, it can't be a documentary. So just, you know, don't get too invested. But Hillary was like, nope, I'm going to do right by you guys. And I'm going to make sure that this is as immersive for you as possible. And I'm going to do justice to the period that you love so well. I just, yeah, I respect that so much.